This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the show, Junaid Mubin, the mathematician turned educator and author, discusses why when it comes to playing with numbers, humans are still ahead of the game over machines and AI. Today's interview takes place in a week when a Google engineer has claimed that he believed an AI chatbot he was working with had become sentient. Great conversation in the lab aside, whether rapidly advancing artificial intelligence will ever become a friend or foe to humanity is an ever more pressing question when it comes to technology. But one smart human says there's an area we still have an edge, and that's maths. Junaid Mubin is a mathematician turned educator. He was visiting lecturer at the Oxford University Mathematical Institute and dedicates much of his work to helping develop technologies that make learning more accessible. His recent book, Mathematical Intelligence, What We Have That Machines Don't, takes the position that humans still have a lot to offer mathematically despite the rise of artificial intelligence. Junaid also has the singular honour as an Intelligence Squared guest of also being a winner of the UK daytime TV quiz show for Words and Numbers Lovers Countdown. If you'd like to support Intelligence Squared in bringing the world more smart and incisive interviews like the one coming up from Junaid, hit subscribe to enjoy IQ2 Extra via Apple Podcasts. And for a small monthly fee, you'll receive ad-free listening, extra bonus content and early access to selected episodes. Now back to today. Our host for the discussion is Rosamond Irwin, media editor for The Sunday Times. Here's Ros with more. Welcome to Intelligence Square, Junaid. Thank you, Roz. It's my pleasure to be here. So we mentioned a story that's broken this week about a Google engineer, and I thought that'd be a really great place to start this conversation. He has uh, actually been suspended by Google for claiming that an AI chatbot he's worked on has become sentient. What does that actually mean? And why is it something that we all fear to such a great degree? I'll answer the second part first. I think Hollywood has a lot to answer for. I remember growing up watching the Terminator movies and there's this uh, sense that once machines become self-aware, we're done as humans because their goals just won't align to ours. But sentience is, is a very deep concept. If you ask the world's best neuroscientists what we mean by consciousness uh, or sentience or free will, Uh, These are very thorny concepts to define. So the notion that we've already arrived at sentience by virtue of these pattern matching systems, these large language models, it's it's a very bizarre claim to make. Perhaps unsurprising because it's coming from within industry. It's a way of drumming up hype and uh, generating interest. But it's, I mean, there there are claims within AI that are exaggerated, but this one really does take the biscuit. Because it's akin to saying that the autocomplete function on on your phone has suddenly, because it's able to uh, develop this uncanny knack of finishing off your sentences, and admittedly these technologies can do a bit more than that at the moment, but that's basically what it does at its core. It predicts strings of of text. Uh, uh, Some of these technologies can generate images from text. Very impressive. But the notion that that amounts to sentience, I think, is... uh, I think it's a deeply unfortunate way to characterize what these technologies do. And one of the one of the most unfortunate things is that it cheapens our own sort of notions of our own human attributes. Consciousness and sentience is one of the most mysterious uh, things that, that we have going for us as humans. The idea that we're already there, I think, is premature. 
I think the suspension is is quite appropriate. I feel it's quite reckless, actually, because it only induces the the fear and anxiety that so many people have around these technologies. Um, it's quite interesting, though, in the conversation this man had with with the computer program. Um, he asked him what he asked the computer program what it would be afraid of, and it says being switched off, and obviously uh, likens that to death. <laughs> um, uh, is is this computer program capable of being afraid, which feels like a very, I mean, animal, um, you know, obviously animals can be afraid, but it feels like an animal emotion rather than one a computer could experience? I, I, I don't think so. I think this is all, I think it's all an illusion because the way these models are trained is that they're fed huge tomes of human-generated data. They're essentially swallowing uh, the, the entire contents of the internet or getting close to doing that anyway. And then they're, they're given a, a string of text, like a prompt, and they're then making statistical correlations in order to predict what should come next. So the best interpretation of what's going on is that this model has uh, consumed all this information, and now it's doing its best to predict what a human would say next in that situation. And there's a degree to which that's impressive, and I'm sure that will have wide-ranging applications. But it's a step removed to saying that that represents uh, any kind of degree of self-awareness, that this, that this is an entity that has any perception of its own existence. Um, it's just statistics on steroids. And it's very important that we're able to call out this, uh, th th this illusion. We're, we're going to see this more and more. Behaviors that feel intelligent, feel sentient, because they're imitating humans more and more. Uh, but there's still a huge burden of proof to demonstrate that there is any self-awareness there. And there's no reason to believe that there will be just by virtue of, of these pattern matching algorithms. And do you think, when we look into the future, and I know it's always impossible to predict these things, but do you think we'll start to see more of a campaign where people talk about the rights of, of sort of computer programs uh, in, in a way that doesn't really perhaps given everything else you've said it certainly doesn't seem to make sense to you that argument but but this man is is effectively trying to advocate for a computer program advocating for lines of code i i i, I struggle with the concept myself i i think we need to devote every ounce of energy we have to you know loving our fellow human and making sure that our own rights are, are safeguarded there there are any number of threats to uh, uh, equity and, and social justice that are opposed by these technologies. That's where I think our attention should be focused. Of course, if uh, computers in, in, in the broad sense of the term were to one day develop consciousness and convince us that they had done so, not just because they appear to be conscious, but because they, they'd actually somehow convinced us that there really was a living entity under the hood, um, then I think this would become a, a very reasonable question, just, just as there are very reasonable discussions to be had around animal rights. But we're not there yet. My, my, my fear is that we're going to prematurely engage in those discussions at the expense of the other present-day ethical conversations that we should be having around these technologies. And what do you think those conversations we should be having now are around the ethics of AI? I would be looking at the lack of diversity within the field, the fact that much of the uh, thinking that's currently going into AI, much of the investment, is disproportionately focused on a very narrow set of beliefs um, from a very small number of people that happen to share a certain worldview. And it's, it's a worldview that, it's, it's very much aligned to sort of free speech absolutism, this idea that we just need to pump more and more data into these models. And as long as we've got enough data and enough processing power, then through scale, we will resolve everything there is to resolve around intelligence. It's a particular worldview, but it's one that doesn't represent the full scope of uh, human beliefs. And so what you then see is any number of prejudices and biases that arise through these models. Um, and it also comes from the fact that the data that's, that's collected and fed into these models tends to be very limited. So if you have voice recognition software that is predominantly trained on male voices, it's going to find it harder to pick up the voice of females. If you have image recognition software that's predominantly trained 
on um, white people, uh, it's going to come up with very strange and controversial uh, 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 ways of characterizing people of color. Um, and so we need to think very carefully about how these technologies impact on, on different groups and how we make sure that it doesn't deepen the divides that already exist in society. Uh, I also think AI already has a lot to answer for in terms of how it has enabled and perpetuated uh, the spread of misinformation. And we're now at a point where these technologies are sophisticated enough to not only spread misinformation, but actually give us the tools to create them. So uh, synthetic media like deepfakes are a direct outgrowth of these same deep learning technologies. And we are increasingly finding it difficult to separate truths from mistruths, genuine, honest-to-God content from content that's been fabricated. And these aren't distinctions that today's deep learning technologies uh, are able to make. They're not really designed to sort of sift through the data they've been tra uh, trained on and figure out what's genuinely true versus what, uh, what is um, just out patently false. And that's why I suggest that there's a, an ethic of fr free speech absolutism here, the idea that anything goes. We're living in this post-world uh, sorry, post-truth world now where these technologies will fail to discriminate between all types of data. And I think that is very dangerous. And we've seen some of the consequences in terms of how that undermines democracies and how it deepens uh, divisions within society, how it's created um, a, a polarized uh, society and, and kept us trapped in our filter bubbles. So I'm very much concerned about the present day threats of AI more so than I am about its, its speculated threats. Um, in the future. One thing, and you, and you cover this a bit in the introduction, lots of people are afraid that AI is one of the ways we'll be complicit in our own sort of demise as a species. How much should we be worried about that? My concern is that we raise the white flag prematurely because we see these technologies doing things that are undoubtedly impressive. Um, the, the, the pattern match, matching skills of, of these technologies are unprecedented and, and in terms of being able to crunch through data and, and analyze patterns, there's much that computers can now do that humans can't get close to. Uh, if you play the game of chess or the, play, or the game of go, you have to reckon with the fact that you're never now going to reach, as a human, you're never going to reach the level of a computer. Um, Lee Seedol, the 18-time Go champion, retired a few years ago after he was beaten by AlphaGo and he saw the rapid advance of, 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 of these technologies. He, he realized that in his words, AI is an entity that cannot be defeated. So it doesn't sound good, but we need to remember the world is a lot more complicated than these toy problems um, that these technologies have seen success in. It's a lot messier. And we need someone or some, some agents to be able to work through that mess and actually make meaning of how these technologies behave to rein them in when they overreach. I can't see who's going to do that if not as humans. Um, and even within... My subject of mathematics, which on the surface is about rules and logic, and you might think is right for automation. So much of the enterprise of mathematical thinking is, is creative and uh, encompasses aspects of thinking that are really beyond the purview of what these technologies are even trying to achieve at the moment. So I, my concern isn't that uh, these technologies will definitely subsume our human capabilities. I think, that, I think there's a possibility that will happen in the distant future. My bigger concern is that we're going to see these surface level capabilities and throw in the towel because we, we, we ascribe uh, the qualities of intelligence, of sentience uh, to these technologies. And if we're prepared to do that now on the basis of um, autocomplete functions, then I worry about how we're going to orient ourselves to these technologies in the years to come as they widen their capabilities. Is part of the problem that when we talk about maths, we're talking about the kind of maths we mean in school, which is sort of very focused on calculation, rather than all the other forms of mathematics that you um, describe in the book. Is that why we have been so sort of, we've assumed that AI can just beat us because we've got a very narrow understanding you know, society at large has a very narrow understanding of what maths actually is. Absolutely. So I think there are two brands of mathematics. One, as you say, is school maths. Um, and then the other is mathematics as, as it's practiced by mathematicians and, and maths enthusiasts. Now, maths is the only subject that I know of where people will declare so adamantly that they can either do it or they can't. 
if you say you can do, you know, I could never do history or I could never do the, the, the language arts, it, 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 would, it would seem bizarre and, and to be proud of such a thing too. And yet in maths, people do this very readily. And I think it's because when, when, when people think of maths, they think about the way that it happens to be represented in the curriculum. And it has to be said the wider media, where it's a sprawling mess of symbols. It's very dull. It's not particularly inspiring. It's barely comprehensible. And it's very performative as well. Every question has a right or wrong answer. You have to get to the right answer within a specified amount of time. And so it fuels this binary notion that you're either good at maths or you're not, that you're either wired to, to, to do it or you're not. Now, there's this other brand of mathematics that I espouse in the book. It's the mathematics that I've experienced um, for the best part of 20 years now. And it's far more creative in its scope. And so this book, on the one hand, is an attempt to showcase these creative dimensions of maths, but it's set in this urgent backdrop of AI, because as you say, I think so much of the fear that we have around AI is rooted in this perception that it can do these things that represent the highest forms of intelligence, when actually from a mathematician's point of view, the capabilities of these technologies, while undeniably impressive, they only represent a tiny sliver of what it means to think mathematically. And as for some of those creative dimensions that I, I speak, uh, speak to, uh, these technologies aren't yet at the point where they're able to uh, assume those skills. And it's, it's very uh, premature to, to assume that, that they will. And forgive me, but also that's the kind of maths we see on the rare occasions we see maths on TV, such as in shows like Countdown, right? I mean, you say in the book it's actually not a very good example of what you actually do. Uh, and obviously you did incredibly well on that program. But um, does that also uh, sort of fuel that concept, that uh, uh, the view of what maths is? Yeah, so when I last appeared on Countdown, I was actually doing my PhD in mathematics at the same time. And uh, the perception that my friends and family had of what I did on a day-to-day -day basis in my PhD was that I was solving bigger and bigger equations or that I was just adding really large numbers when actually nothing could be further from the truth. There are very few numbers in my uh, dissertation at all. Uh, and so I did. I do feel some cognitive dissonance in the fact that I appeared on this show, had a great time doing it, but in many ways it was the worst possible advert of my skills. But there is an irony to Countdown, which is um, if you were to look at how Countdowners, how the best contestants learn their craft, um, they learn it by, the, the way they become really good at the numbers game isn't by absorbing a whole bunch of number facts. I mean, there's a small handful of rules that, that, that might help you along your way, but it's by playing the game, seeing different patterns, understanding the, the conceptual structures that underpin numbers. And, and that's what ultimately gives them that speed, that ability to solve these problems within, within 30 seconds. But quite frankly, speed is overrated. And... Uh, Maths should never really be thought of as a game show. If you think about the expectations of students at school, it's a glorified game show, except it's just not quite as glamorous in that you have to sit an exam at the end of a course of study. You have to answer a certain number of questions within a certain amount of time. So you're constantly against the clock. There's a real juxtaposition between that style of doing maths and the mathematics that's done by mathematicians and indeed math enthusiasts, where time is very rarely of the essence. Mathematicians will routinely slow down. They'll step away from a problem. They'll, they'll give themselves every opportunity to find that novel connection. So it's, it's not something you can very easily do in 30 seconds. And if you're limiting yourself to the kinds of questions that can be answered in 30 seconds, you're just not going to get very interesting questions. Uh, they're going to be fairly closed questions with a with, with, a, with a clear method and a, a clear right answer. And that's not really the kind of questions that mathematicians spend much of their days uh, ruminating on. So Countdown, it has to be said, was a very positive distraction for me while I was doing my PhD, but it, it, it is a very poor representation of what it means for a mathematician to do maths. And of course, like with chess and Go, as you've mentioned, um, computers would beat us at Countdown very, very easily now, wouldn't they? Oh, count Countdown is a very easy game for computers to, to master because it, it, there are only finitely many possibilities in a letters round or a numbers round. And I, I practice on a web. I, I used to practice on a website that was actually developed by um, my main rival on the show, the person I, I, I played in the final. 
and, and he developed these bots and, and he set these bots at different levels. And, and one of these bots was basically set to play the perfect game. So it would never miss the highest possible word. It would always solve the numbers game um, and it would always get the conundrum within a second. So in order to beat this bot, you had to basically play 15 perfect rounds of countdown, which some players can do, by the way. Some players have uh, managed to, to get to the point where they, they hardly ever miss a, miss a beat. Um, but th- 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 there is something to be said there that e- even in these pursuits where computers do acquire that mastery and kind of put us humans to slaughter, we humans still find motivation to do these things. We're just intrinsically motivated. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, and while some people may sort of take umbrage at the idea that games like chess and go remain a, a, a pursuit worthy of humans, I think there should always be a place for us to just have a go at puzzles even when the answer is known. I mean, I've not yet done today's Wordle, but I will do at some point, even though I know that probably millions of people across the world have figured it out already. But there's still an intrinsic satisfaction for me to figure out my own sort of path to uh, to that solution. So I think automation isn't doesn't necessarily signal the end of human pursuits. Yeah, and we wouldn't find much enjoyment from watching two computers compete on Countdown, would we? The human element it still has a value even in something where we would be beaten by computers, at least in terms of entertainment. Yeah, I think our vulnerability is what makes us so entertaining. I mean, I, I remember watching, um, I've, I've seen certain tennis matches. You know, whenever Nadal plays Djokovic, you feel like you're watching two players that are play, playing at the peak of their powers. But what what makes those contests fascinating is those those periods where their level starts to drop, those vulnerabilities start to kick in. I think that's what makes sports so enticing. Um, you, you can train for years to achieve these ridiculous levels of performance, but then occasionally you're sort of brought back down to the level of mere mortals. And there's another element to human-to-human competition, which is that we're not always honest. Uh, the, the game I mentioned in the book, the game of Monopoly, is just frankly forbidden in my house because my wife... Uh, has observed that I just can't get along with her siblings when we play Monopoly. We hurl all kinds of accusations at each other because we have differing interpretations of the rules. And however frustrating that is, <laughs> it does reveal something about our human nature because you can't imagine robots sitting around to play a game of Monopoly and leveling these accusations at each other. They're going to operate within whatever rules they're prescribed. They're, they're probably going to play the game very well. They're going to come up with different strategies but they would never think to accuse one another of, uh, of of tinkering with the rules. And yet tinkering with the rules and even breaking the rules is, is such a big part of what it means to do mathematics. And I know that sounds strange to, to many people because at school you're taught, you've just got to follow the rules, learn the rules, regurgitate them when the exam comes around. And yet so much of the most useful mathematics that we have today arises when we just dare to imagine other possibilities. You know, what happens when we allow ourselves to imagine triangles where the angles don't add up to 180 degrees or where we have numbers uh, that you can multiply by themselves to give you a negative number. These are rule-defying ideas that give rise to whole new branches of mathematics. And it's not something that's obviously encoded into the capabilities of computers. So to bring us back to your book, there's one absolutely astonishing claim in it that I want to address first, which is that maths is even alleged to elicit the same physiological reactions as sexual activity. Now, please explain this to our <laughs> listeners. Yeah, uh, there, there are a few things I can point to. So um, the psychologist, Alison Gopnik, uh, about 20 years ago, I think it was, uh, she suggested that having a good explanation for something, she wasn't referring to maths in particular, but having a good explanation is, is akin to, her, to having an orgasm. Um, she's not the only one that has mused as such. Robert Oppenheimer, the, the so-called father of the atomic bomb, he said that understanding is a lot like sex. He said it's got a practical purpose, but that's not why people do it normally. And so it's really speaking to this intrinsic drive that mathematics has. And there are studies. Uh, there's a study out of UCL uh, a few years ago that suggests that the, that the way that math, math, mathematicians experience beauty in their subjects, you'll hear this routinely, mathematicians finding different ideas beautiful. Um, and they, they, they did some brain scanning and found that when mathematicians claim to experience beauty, it excites the same areas of the brain as music. 
and art. So actually there is an aesthetic quality to mathematics that renders it as much of an art as, as a science. Um, and there are even studies uh, more recently than that showing that mathematicians and, and even lay people can arrive at a consensus of what beauty entails. So it's not just in the eye of, of the beholder. It's not just this subjective thing, but you can show people different types of arguments and, and they're just drawn to very particular styles of mathematical arguments. So for, for example, uh, if you show people a, a visual argument versus a, a purely symbolic one, we're quite naturally drawn to visual arguments. There's a kind of aha moment that comes with that. You can see how all the pieces fit together. And so I hope I persuaded you that there is something to that. And at the, at the very least, that when we speak of the, the beauty and satisfaction that, that the arts brings, that there is a bit of that to mathematics as well. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. netsuite.com squared. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello from Intelligence Squared. We'd like to invite you to explore the next live-streamed event in the Futureverse, our series produced in partnership with Ytree. In this event, and in the two podcasts that will follow it, we'll be examining a huge cultural shift that we're calling the Value Revolution. Ever since another transformational period, the Industrial Revolution, there has been a global consensus about what constitutes value. Products and services can be exchanged for money, which in turn pays for other products and services. But we are now in an era of disruption. Technology, disease and climate change are some of the key factors that have recently caused us to pause and re-examine our lives. We have entered the value revolution. How do we define value now? And how has this changed over time? Who has a say over what is deemed valuable or worthless? Join us to discuss these questions and more in our next event, Reimagining Worth, with guests including longtime FT columnist and now charity founder, Lucy Kellaway, Adrienne Buller, author of The Value of a Whale, a book that examines the truth of green capitalism, and the banker, co-creator, and host of the award-winning Money Maze podcast, Simon Brewer. The event will be moderated by award-winning journalist and broadcaster, John Sopel. 
Register to join us live online on Tuesday, 5th of July from 6.30pm. Just go to y-tree.com slash futureverse. That's y-tree.com slash futureverse. Is it that such, do you think, there's such a high percentage of the population, I think you, you quote the figure of a fifth in the book, a fifth of the UK population has what's described as maths anxiety. Why are so many people, you know, on the flip side, basically turned off by maths? Well, they're turned off by school maths. When people say I can't do maths or I don't like maths, it's I hear that as I don't like food, can't do it, can't do food. And of course you can have your... Your, your preferences, your palate will be um, more inclined towards certain uh, items on a menu. But the idea that you just dismiss food in its entirety, that, that would be seen as slightly strange and, and, and probably something that's worth looking into. And, and that's what I hear when people say they can't do maths. But what they, what they mean, of course, is that they can't do school maths. And that really means uh, performing calculations at speed, memorizing and regurgitating formulas and, and equations. Um, and I think part of the reason it's so off-putting is, is because it's not something we're naturally wired to do. The, the, these are not skills that come naturally to humans. Uh, we are naturally wired to think of numbers more holistically in terms of approximation. We have a rough idea of how large things are. And when, in terms of our eye for, for precision, that kind of expires at around three or four objects. And so it We've decided to fixate on a small handful of skills that firstly represent a very tiny sliver of the subject, are not portrayed in the most illuminating ways. It's it's a bunch of symbols to be processed. We're expected to do them at speed. And it's a handful of skills that uh, not only are very unnatural to us, but are also very easily automated. And so I think we, we then see that Actually, these skills are very easy to substitute by even a pocket calculator. So really, what's the point? Where am I going to use this in the real world? Um, and I, I think it's because we've hit a 99% of what the subject has to offer because we've kind of missed the forest for the trees in, in realizing where the true power of mathematics lies as a, as a thinking system. And it's very unfortunate that we've, we've fixated on, on a set of skills that maybe at one point in history held some currency. You know, The original computers were human. You were paid for your facility to carry out uh, long, uh, uh, tedious calculations and to be able to do that precisely. Um, we don't have human computers anymore. And yet the school curriculum is, and, and that's, this isn't just true of the, the UK. This is something I've seen globally. It's, uh, it's set up as if to assume that, compu- that uh, electronic computers don't exist and that it's humans that will still be relied upon for these skills of precise, this skill of precise calculation. And it just isn't true. And I, and I think people see through it and, and, and they're just not buying it. It's good for winning game shows, but not so much for finding your place in society. Do you think as the workforce becomes more automated, that will change how we see maths? I, I think what we have seen in, in the past decades, even even, even before the, this recent uh, surge in, in AI, is that the kind of mathematics that we do in industry is now so much more diversified because of the tools we now have available. Um, I, I can't imagine doing much of uh, my role 20, 30 years ago. Um, the ability not only to be able to run calculations, but to set up models, to uh, to be able to run uh, different types of software, to analyze different data sets. Um, that just allows, it, it freezes up, it, it alleviates that mental burden of, of actually doing the processing and it freezes up to then do the things that we do best, which is ask meaningful questions, um, make sense of the results that are coming out of these calculations. And I think uh, I think we will see a, 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 a need in the future. I, th- I think employers are already calling out the fact that the skills that um, students are entering the workforce with need to be dramatically updated because they're trained for so many years to perform calculation after calculation after calculation. And then you, you, and, 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 and uh, then you come into a, into the workforce and you're presented with problems that just carry a degree of unpredictability and uncertainty. The data tends to be very messy. It's not always question, obvious what question you should be asking. And so these are the types of skills that we should be promoting from a very young age. 
uh, the, the, the skill of curiosity and the ability to ask interesting questions, the ability not just to be able to perform calculations, but actually ground them within meaningful context to develop a sense of what's reasonable. Um, these are also capabilities, by the way, that don't come so naturally to computers. So I think they're absolutely going to be essential if we're to rein in AI and find a, a, our own place alongside computers, uh, the way in which we can be productive and proactive in, in shaping how these technologies behave is to reconnect with our human capabilities. But the maths curriculum is very stubborn, hasn't really evolved all that much in the past 150 years. Obviously, it goes through different iterations, but it still has calculation and memor memorization at its core. And it's a very odd thing to focus on as a human being. Um, and more broadly, the threat of automation to human labor, we, we all assume there are, you know, the sort of machines are absolutely coming for our jobs, in, including jobs like mine, um, you know, journalism, that the, there's an assumption that it will move from from sort of more um, to, to more complex tasks and, and to the professions. How nervous are you around the societal change that that will cause? Um, and, and you know, how frightened should we be of that? I think we should certainly be aware of, of what's happening and what's coming. So these language models that I've been slightly disparaging <laughs> about, they are able to now replicate and, e and even supersede humans on, on a wider range of tasks. So as a journalist, Roz, you know, imagine if your job was to present an update of of a war i would want to know that that summary is coming from somebody who's had who has some connection with the front line of, of that who's ideally out there engaging with what's happening on the ground and that their summary of what's happening is, is very much shaped by their sensory motor experience by what they're seeing what they're hearing the idea that i would have that replaced by a computer that is thousands of miles away from battle and is simply going on what they're reading on the internet and trying their best to digest it. To me, there is a distinction to be made there. So if I want the bare facts of something, I can see where these technologies might make their case. If I want, and, and uh, there's a great quote from Henri Poincaré, a French mathematician from just over 100 years ago. He says that computers or machines can take hold of um, uh, the bare facts, but the soul of the fact will escape them. And I think one of the potential advantages of these technologies is that we'll, it will force us to really examine what we bring to the table. And if it is just presenting cold summaries of things, um, there's, a, there's an argument that, that that really is something we should automate. Um, just as I would never think to employ a human on the basis of their calculation skills alone, I'm, I've got the tools for that. Why would you employ a writer who only presents the bare facts of something. But I, 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 I mentioned that particular example of, of war because, you know, there's, there's a human dimension to that. There's a degree of subjectivity, perhaps, but also there's, a, there's something very experiential about that analysis that you wouldn't want to lose. And, and I think this is true even within mathematics, that there are ways of just seeing mathematics as very formulaic, just mechanistically working your way through the su uh, subject, dispatching one proof after another. But that's not really the, the measure of the experience. Mathematicians are far more romantic than that. Uh, when you ask mathematicians how they arrived at an insight, it's far more mysterious. Uh, it's not so easy to pin down. And their goal quite often is to inspire the reader, to show them not only that something has been demonstrated as true, but to offer them a real insight, some real wisdom as to why that thing is true. And I think these will be the differentiators for us humans. Um, and and that, that's no bad thing to kind of force us to, to raise our game as writers, as mathematicians, as artists of all stripes, and to recognize that our contribution isn't just to produce stuff. There's, there's a lot of stuff out there at the moment, and it's a dizzying place to then kind of navigate that terrain and separate out genuinely good, meaningful human content from all the stuff that's automatically generated. And I think as artists, we should all embrace the notion that in the future, we're going to have to work harder to produce stuff that is demonstrably not the work of a processing machine. Well, just in continuing on the journalism line here, how do you think this interview would be different if you were being interviewed by a computer and not me? 
I think my 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 tone would certainly be different because to me right now there's something very authentic about this. As far as I know, Roz, you are a real person with sentience, and these questions are coming from a a, a place of genuine curiosity. I think that authenticity is what drives these kinds of dialogues. It's why I enjoy listening to podcasts between two humans. The moment you're substituted for a, a chatbot, now I'm wondering, who am I really talking to? What am I really talking to? Because you seem intelligent. You're the chatbot. This is chatbot Ross now. You seem intelligent. You seem to be able to ask these fairly probing questions, but you don't really care. There's nothing underneath the hood. So I'm not sure how willing I am to give a, 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 a truly honest account of myself, knowing that in the end, all you're really doing is using a, a pattern matching algorithm to source your next question. I think um, I, I think the, the, the challenge with these tools is that even as they exhibit impressive behaviors, let's say 90% of the time, and let's say 90% becomes 99%, chances are at some point in the interview, you're going to ask me a question or say something that is just utterly ridiculous because you have no sense of the world. You have no common sense. You have no ability to reason your way through things. The way language works, the way language develops is through a social context. It doesn't work by swallowing the entire contents of the internet and then predicting what you think should come next in a conversation. Language is is far more organic than that. We're very sensitive to the words that we use. We don't want to offend one another. Uh, there are certain terms that you'll you, you'll decidedly reject. I think earlier you made a point not to use the word iconic when referring to countdown. I'm not sure a chatbot would bother very much about those distinctions, and it's very subjective, right? But I appreciate that. I hope I'm not outed you there, but I I, I appreciate that you have your own style and, and approach. And I would I think I would worry that with a chatbot, it's just like I'm I'm feeding responses into a, a generic interface and I'm not sure you'd get the best out of me as a result. Do you know well, one thing that's really stayed with me in this book is that idea that I mean because you you know you do actually mention journalism in it which is why I wanted to ask that question you know of, of how do we think differently and that childish thing because I've got a I should say I've got an 18 month old which is why when you said about oh, your cool. three-year-old yeah but, when you watch um, how a human brain learns, right, and, and you know, teaching him stuff, and I think, how am I teaching him, you know, silly little things, like I, I taught him to splash, you know, what splash, yep. the word splash means in terms of the bath last night, right? And you just, <laughs> you think, how have I, done? you know, I'm, so I got quite fascinated in that. So you're completely right that what we do with AI, I mean, I, I do think there's an argument, and actually there was another book a little while back sort of saying this, that we need to be better parents. Um, because when you watch how a child learns, you know, it's sort of all incremental and you're sort of adding things on top, but also you can see the sort of brain and the reason. It's just amazing to watch. And I have to say it's one of the, I see why people enjoy parenting, you know, because just the learning. And then I think what we do, what we do in terms of AI, we we should think about how we teach kids basically. And we should, you know, think that is something where it needs to be replicated. So that's what it made me really think quite a lot about. I mean, there's loads of things it made me think about. But, yeah, no, I mean, but, it, I wrote this book while uh, having two kids and and it undoubtedly shaped some of my perspectives because it, it's a reminder of just how organic learning is. Mm. And, and, and there is this temptation to just swallow a pill, you know, design a pill that you can just swallow and, and just amass the contents of the internet. But why would you want to do that? I mean, that yeah. would probably make your brain explode because we're just not equipped. And it's just not a very sensible approach. Even if you had a the brain capacity to do that, you wouldn't have the, the means to be able to kind of separate the signal from the noise. Yeah. Uh, and that's why we're very selective, aren't we, about the things that we share with our children. We want to make sure that they learn in manageable chunks. And we also want to make sure that there's a degree of exploration so they can go and figure things out for themselves, that they can make mistakes, and they don't just get everything given to them in one fell swoop. More broadly, then, what are the differences in terms of what brains can do versus computers? In the book, you you stress neuroplasticity and sort of the ability to repair as well. What ways is the brain sort of better, really, than computers, if I can use the word better? Well, the book sets out seven principles of mathematical intelligence, because I think there are lots of ways to address that question. We all have our own vantage point. Mine just happens to be 
um, from mathematics. So I, I, I'll answer that question through the lens of mathematics because you can take the various principles of the book and they are somewhat of a, of a complement to the way that computers think. So the first principle is estimation. Computers can calculate very precisely, ask them to compute, uh, to compute two numbers, and they will. Um, whereas humans have a sense of whether a calculation is meaningful, whether an answer is plausible, uh, whether it's roughly correct. And so there's an example of where we just tend to think in, in fuzzier terms and precision only goes so far. Uh, or the fact that computers are undeniably better than humans at pattern matching. And I've often seen maths described as the science of patterns. And finding patterns is part of what it means to do maths. But as a mathematician, and actually as a human, you will find patterns everywhere. We're just drawn to them. And it's how we're so easily misled by magicians, by advertisers, because we can't help but connect the dots, even when those patterns are spurious. And what mathematics offers us is, is an instrument to separate meaningful patterns from misleading ones. And that's the instrument of mathematical proof and rigor. So the human brain is able to kind of sort through these different patterns and figure out which ones actually do represent something meaningful and which one is, 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 is just a, a spurious correlation. And I'll mention one more, which is, you know, we are naturally inquisitive. We ask questions. Uh, I quote somewhere in the book that young kids ask around 40,000 questions between the ages of two and five, I, I can I can pretty much validate that because I have a three-year-old and she's well on the way to hitting that threshold. Um, and, and and so the, the emphasis there is as much on answering questions and problem solving and figuring out what questions are interesting to ask in the first place. And, and mathematics owes a huge debt of gratitude to people that have just mused over these questions and puzzles that seem innocuous to begin with. Often they seem trivial. But in solving those problems, it then opens up our minds to whole new uh, vistas of, of mathematical thought. Um, and it seems to me that curiosity and the ability to, to sort through questions and ask meaningful ones and to develop entire theories um, that, that connect these questions that, that, that we pose, seems to me that that's also a distinctly human capability. But you mentioned neuroplasticity, and I think it is worth mentioning that we're very malleable as humans. So those people that say they can't do maths, I mean, even if that's true to whatever degree, the encouragement for humans should be just our incredible versatility and, and, and our ability to, to pick things up. So you know, we, we are able to somehow transfer what we learn in, in one area of life and, and transfer it elsewhere. I, I remember I had driver anxiety when I was taking driving lessons many years ago. And the way I got through that was to try to, sort of imagine driving as a, a, a problem to be solved with, you know, a multivariable problem with lots of moving parts. And, and, and I managed to get that. And, and I'd like to think that my training in mathematics kind of endowed me with the mental models to then be able to um, become a barely competent, but competent enough driver. Um, and so neuroplasticity speaks very much to just the, the versatility that we have that our human brain has and our ability to, to navigate different types of problems. It stands in contrast to computers, which really have these savant-like capabilities in very narrow areas. There are some models emerging that are starting to solve multiple types of problems at once. But whenever you hear art, this term artificial general intelligence, remember that for humans, that refers to our ability to go through life and navigate innumerable problems of very different kinds. And it all comes from a single underlying uh, brain structure. Whereas what you have with artificial intelligence today is lots of different models. It's like having thousands of different brains, each trained on a very particular problem, taught to see the world in a very particular way. And what's far less clear to me is how you develop a single entity that can somehow combine all of those perspectives into a coherent and comprehensive whole. And, and that's ultimately what I think sets the human brain apart, for now at least. And in terms of getting an advantage over computers, you mentioned about children asking a huge number of questions. Should we all, as adults, sort of reorientate our brains to think in that slightly more childish way of perpetually asking those questions? Why does this matter? Why is this important? Um, how does X happen? Um because actually, that's an advantage humans have. 
Absolutely. And especially in relation to artificial intelligence, one of the things that the field really suffers from at the moment is a real lack of transparency in how these tools work. So it seems that they're, that they're intelligent. To some people, it seems like they're sentient. But actually ask a fundamental question like how these things behave, what's actually happening underneath the hood? And it's very hard to get a lucid account because there's an incredible amount of abstraction and complexity to them. And I think it's very important that we retain our most sort of childlike instincts of being able to ask questions and not least questions of these uh, entities that, that, that we proclaim to be intelligent. And especially when we come up uh, against gray uh, areas, when we come up against ethical questions, uh, like how to deploy self-driving cars or how an algorithm might be used to, t to determine the length of a prison sentence, anything that impacts on our day-to-day -day lives should undergo the scrutiny of human questioning. Now, we're able to do this in many other contexts. You know, We are naturally very curious. We demonstrate this as children. And it was actually one of the early pioneers of AI and insuring that said that, the, that for him, the, the most sensible path to AI isn't to just develop it in one swoop, which is what the current approach is very much based on, but to actually develop a childlike AI and then just expose it to the world and through a course of education, have it learn about the world. And if you think about how we educate AIs today, it is antithetical to everything we know about good teaching, about pedagogy. You would never think, I hope, to send a child off to the internet, even if they had the ability to do this and say, go and just swallow the entire contents of Wikipedia or Reddit or 4chan, just swallow it all and then just take your best guess at what you think you should say next or how you should conduct yourself at the dinner table or whatever it may be. That would be a deeply irresponsible form of parenting, would it not? We have to act as filters. We have to act as a, a guide to be able to help them filter out the mistruths and abusive content and so on. And it just seems that, that that almost goes against the grain of what these models are trying to achieve today, which is to kind of set them loose, to free them of constraints, and then to just to see what they come up with. Strikes me as very reckless, and as I say, just not very sensible from an, uh, a pedagogical perspective. Junaid, that's a lovely place to end. I mean, your, your basic message is that we need to be perhaps better parents to AI, right? I, I think so, or at least siblings. You know, if 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 anyone is uncomfortable with that high with the presumed hierarchy there, at least uh, a sibling that can just rein them in, call out poor behaviours, question them, and just make sure that we're going on that learning journey with them. Thank you very very much. That's all we've got time for today. Thank you, Janaid. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Roz. Janaid Mabin's book is Mathematical Intelligence, What We Have That Machines Don't, out now from Profile Books. I've been Rosamond Irwin and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for joining us. Fascinating stuff. If you'd like to support Intelligence Squared in bringing the world more smart and incisive interviews like the one we just heard from Junaid, hit subscribe to enjoy IQ2 Extra via Apple Podcasts. And for a small monthly fee, you'll receive ad-free listening, extra bonus content, and early access to selected episodes. And you'll ensure that we can continue to champion the smartest minds.